you, you probably would not be alone in the answers that you give. But I want to ask you a question this morning. In your Christian life, in your spiritual journey, have you ever before experienced doubts? Yeah. Have you ever before maybe even had doubts about who Jesus is? Maybe doubts about the very nature of God. Maybe, maybe doubts even about your own salvation. What do you do with those doubts when they come? What, what, what do you do when you have these moments of doubting and, and, and you begin to think thoughts that you think, I never would have thought that before, and here they are suddenly coming into your mind. Do you just stuff them? Do you just, let's just, let's just ignore those and, and go on. Do you express them? Do you talk about them to someone else? I want to share a quote with you this morning. Very, very deeply personal quote. The author says, It was just when I wanted Christ and panted after Him that on a sudden the thought crossed my mind which I abhorred but could not conquer, the thought that there was no God, the thought that there was no Christ, that there was no heaven, no hell, that all my prayers were but a farce, and that I might as well have whistled to the winds or spoken to the howling waves. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever had those kinds of thoughts come into your mind that I really don't even know if God exists? I don't know if Jesus is real. Is it worth praying? Does it make a difference? Is heaven reality? Is hell reality? It might surprise you to know that those words were spoken by a famous preacher of years gone by. His name was Charles Spurgeon. You've heard me mention him before. Charles Spurgeon was, without question, the greatest preacher of his time. He, he still bears the, the nickname, the Prince of Preachers. When he preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, it was regularly filled with five, 6,000 people at a time. We were, we were talking about him among the, the pastors just this week, and one of the statements that was made is that within the church setting. He would often preach as many as ten times a week because of the crowds that came to hear him preach. And one of the things that they began to have to do is they began to have to sell tickets to the church service. You say, that is absurd. Who would do that? Well, let me explain to you how they did that. They would sell tickets to their church members a limited number of tickets so that the lost of the community could come and hear the message of the gospel being preached so that they might come to faith in Christ as well. And so they would ask their members, come at another time, come at another time, come to hear the word of God preached at a different time if possible so that we might share the gospel with those who have never heard of Jesus. Steve Lawson, a contemporary preacher, summarizes the massive scope of Charles Spurgeon's ministry when he says, by 1863, over 8 million copies of his sermons had been published. In 1892, at the time of Charles Spurgeon's death, 
50 million of his sermons were published. Just a few short years later, at the end of the 19th century, over 100 million of his sermons were published in 23 different languages. Today, there are over 300 million copies of his sermons in publication. Just a century after his death, Charles Spurgeon has more works in print than any other English-speaking author. Not preacher, but author. When someone like that says, the thought crossed my mind that there was no God, that there was no Christ, that there was no heaven, that there was no hell, that my prayers were a farce, that I might as well have whistled to the wind or spoken to the howling waves, what do you do with that? What do you make of that kind of statement from this kind of man, a literal giant of the faith, a man that I in ministry respect so much, I named my son after him. He's a giant of the faith. What do you make of it when he comes along and he says, the thought crossed my mind that maybe none of it was real? A man who preached to thousands upon thousands of people. A man who even today is still reaping rewards in heaven over people coming to faith in Christ as a result of his sermons in publication today. The Spirit of God was so heavily upon Charles Spurgeon that it was told that when his sermons, which would be published in newspapers at times, Sometimes they were taken and used in the marketplace and there was a lady who came across one of his printed sermons being wrapped around a fish that she had purchased at the marketplace. She read the sermon and came to faith in Christ as a result of it. This is a man used mightily of God and he expresses doubts of this nature. What do you do with this? What are we to make of all of this? How are we to mesh this with what we know of the Christian faith? Well, today in Luke chapter 7, we're introduced to another man who had certain doubts. A man you know, a man greater even than Charles Spurgeon, as our Lord Jesus told us. Let's look at it this morning, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John, that is John the Baptist that we've been introduced to earlier in Luke's gospel, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. They reported all of what things? Well, if you go back and look at John chapter 7, you're, you're reminded of some of the things that Jesus has done. He was on his way to Capernaum, and a group of people, a group of the Jewish leaders come to him and say, Jesus, there's a centurion in our city in Capernaum. The, his servant is sick. Would you come and heal him? And Jesus, not even going into the centurion's home from a distance, heals the servant of this centurion. And then Jesus is traveling from there and he makes his way to the city of Nain. As he's coming into the city, there is a funeral procession coming out of the city and there is a widow who is there and her son has just died, being taken out for burial. Now she is here all by herself and Jesus stops the funeral and he raises this son back to life and gives him back to his mother. And now all of these things are being told about and the disciples of John the Baptist, the ones who have been following him, come and tell all of these things to John. And John 
calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? It's interesting that the message comes to John. He, he has people with him at this time, people interacting with him at this time, but John himself, John the Baptist, not the author of the Gospel of John, but John the Baptist, in the context in which we read this encounter, finds himself in prison. And he hears about everything that Jesus is doing. And John is in prison, and so he sends two of his disciples, two of his followers to Jesus to ask them a specific question. As we make our way through this passage, we're going to break it down into four parts, four things that we see within this passage. Verses 18 through 20, we see the question of John, the question that John asks of Jesus. Beginning in verse 21, we see the answer of Jesus in response to the question of John. In verse 24, we read of the vindication of John the Baptist, and then in verse 25, 29, we read the response of the people to this encounter between Jesus and John. Look at the question of John. Again in verse 19, John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Here is John sitting in prison. The, the, the execution, a sure possibility, if not a definite possibility, probability for John. John the Baptist facing his own death and he comes to this moment and he sends word to Jesus to say, Jesus, are you really the one? Imagine this in the context of the life of John the Baptist. We, we looked at him earlier in Luke's gospel and just months earlier, G John had encountered Jesus and in John chapter 1 you read John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and saying of him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here is John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. He is the one who had announced Jesus as the Messiah, the one who was coming in redemptive work. He spent his whole vocation calling Israel to repentance. Turn away from your sin and turn to God. Calling the people to return to the Lord, preparing the way for Messiah to come. And what is the thanks that he's gotten for it? He's lived in faithfulness to the Word of God. He's lived in faithfulness to the message of Christ. And what is the thanks that John has gotten for it? What's the reward that the Lord gave him for his faithfulness to God? Well, here he is in prison by the hands of a wicked, petty tyrant, a man by the name of Herod the Tetrarch. John had preached against Herod, saying to him that, that Herod, you're living in this incestuous relationship with your brother's wife and all sorts of other evil things that Herod was doing. And John was the only one who had the guts to stand up and call it out for what it is. John the Baptist has been bravely calling into account Herod the Tetrarch when nobody else would do it. And now John is in prison. And he's understandably shaken by it. And it comes across as though John is almost not so sure about Jesus now. 
I told people, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But is he really the Lamb of God? Is he really the Messiah? Is he the promised one from God? John has these expectations, perhaps, of who Jesus was and what Jesus was to do. Just like many of the people in the day of Jesus, one of the reasons that he was rejected by so many people is because they were looking for a political leader who would free them from bondage of Roman oppression. And Jesus came not doing that. In fact, one of his own, Judas, betrayed him. Because Jesus didn't meet his expectations. Have you ever been disappointed because your expectations of the way Jesus should act were different than the way Jesus actually acted? I mean, can, can, we, can we be honest for just a little while? I dare say that that most of you have been in a situation like that where, where you prayed for healing and healing was not coming. Where you prayed for, for this result within your life and it didn't happen that way. Where difficult times came and you prayed that God would bring you out of them and He didn't do that. Your expectations of the way Jesus should act were different than the way He did act. And it creates within us a crisis of faith. What do we do with this? And that's exactly what's happening to John the Baptist here. Uh, Jesus, why is it that I'm getting this? We, we say to him, uh, Jesus, I've tried to live for you. I've tried to be faithful to you. And here we have John the Baptist, this great, this godly man, who is, his world is falling down around him. It's falling so hard that he's shaken to his core. And he's asking, Jesus... Was I right to be sure about you? Have I maybe gotten this all wrong? Have you ever been there before? It's an uncomfortable place to be. It's an uncomfortable place for us to admit we've been as well. We're, we're Christians. We're church people. We're not supposed to deal with this, right? Well, perhaps you don't. But I know I sure have it. I've wondered before, is, is, is this what I signed up for? Is this what it means to live for Jesus? Why is it happening this way? I thought it would be like this. You've probably said the same thing before. See, this is not the doubt of a skeptic. This is a believer, John the Baptist. Here he comes, this great, this godly man. Do you see what he does with his dad? At least John has the, the, the wisdom to do the right thing with his doubts. He brings his doubts to Jesus. When you doubt Jesus, do you know where you ought to go? Notice I didn't say if you doubt. When you doubt Jesus, do you know where you need to go? Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus and find him there ready to hear from you. It's not like he doesn't know it anyway. It's not like he doesn't know what's going on in our minds. When, when all of these things come, when the circumstances of life come against us, when situations are not what we thought they should be, it's not like Jesus doesn't already know that we're thinking in the back of our mind, is this really real? Was I right to stake my life on this? Notice, 
After the question of John, we have the answer of Jesus. I I love going back to these disciples that came from John. Look at what John tells them to ask the Lord. Verse 19, this is the question John wants these disciples to ask. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And then you come to verse 20 and notice the question that they actually asked of Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? (laughs) They got it right. Exactly what John wanted to ask. That is important, because we know that in the answer that Jesus gives, they're going to go back and tell John exactly what Jesus says in response to his question. They're not going to make it up. They're going to come and they're going to say, here's what Jesus said. I love the answers that Jesus provides to this. Look at at verse 21. After Jesus receives the question from the disciples of John, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. Here they come. Jesus John the Baptist has sent us, and he wants us to ask you a question. And here is the question verbatim, Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? They have this interaction with Jesus. Jesus, are you the one? Can we be certain of this? And look at what Jesus does. He listens to their question. And then he just turns around. And he goes out and he heals people of diseases, of plagues, evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. Jesus doesn't even speak to them yet. I wonder if in the back of their minds they're thinking to themselves, what are we supposed to do? We just asked him a question and he just left us standing here. What is going on? And Jesus just goes about his business doing all of these things, and then after he does these things, after he in essence says to them through his actions, you'll hold on just for a minute here, I'll be right back with you. Stand right there and watch. And then Jesus responds by doing something, and then only after he does something does he say something. Verse 22, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen. Jesus, are you really the one? And then he comes in a tidal wave of healing, and the people in mass are made whole. And then he turns back to them and he says, Go tell John what you've seen. Go tell John what you've heard. And here's what they're to tell him. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus here quotes from the Old Testament. Specifically, he takes two passages out of the book of Isaiah, and he says, Guys, go back and tell John what you've seen me do. That these blind people now can see. That these lepers now are cleansed. That the dead are raised back to life. That you see all of this. 
Go back and tell John what you've seen and then tell him this. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. He goes back and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 35, John, a student of the Word of God. In his day, it would have been just the Old Testament, didn't have the completed New Testament. He had just the Old Testament. John, a student of God's Word, knew exactly what Jesus was saying to him. You go back to Isaiah chapter 35, read it this afternoon. It is a prophecy of the Messiah to come, and it tells us in its context what the Messiah would be like and what he would do. Healings would come. Dead would be raised to life. Lepers would be made clean. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61 as well. In the context, again, of passage of Scripture that refers to Messiah and who he would be and what he would be like and what he would do. And the context of these two passages brought together is all about what the Messiah, what the Redeemer, what the Savior is going to do and what he's going to be like. And those two passages say that when He comes, when Messiah comes, He's going to do the very things that we find Jesus doing here in this passage of Scripture. Jesus does this stuff, and then He says, Hey John, look at the Word. Look into the Word of God and see what the Word of God tells you the Messiah is going to be like, and then look at what I have done, John. Do you see them? They are together with one another. The very thing the Word of God said is the thing that I am doing. Friends, I want to encourage you today, when your doubts come, when you begin to doubt the goodness of God, when you begin to doubt the reality of the gospel, run to Jesus Christ. See what He did and hear what He said. It is a plea that I extend to you again today to be a student of the Word of God. It is here that we discover what God is like. It's here that we discover what God says and what God does. It's here that we are introduced to Jesus and all His power, His glory, and His majesty. Be a student of the Word of God and see what Jesus does and hear what Jesus says. It's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't quote all of Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, verse, verse 1, says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You, you would be familiar with the passage. It's the same passage from which Jesus read when he came into the synagogue earlier in Luke's Gospel, and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins to read this very passage, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And Jesus rolls up in the synagogue the scroll of Isaiah, he places it aside and he says to the people, today this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. Jesus proclaiming himself to be the promised redeemer come from God. But is it not interesting to you what Jesus leaves out of that when he tells John's disciples to go back to John? 
Again, verse 22, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus leaves out the last couple of phrases of Isaiah 61.1, which reads again, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Again, where's John the Baptist? He's in one of Herod the Tetrarch's prisons. He knew Isaiah 61. He knew what the prophet said. He knew the promise of the Messiah and what he would be like. And yet, John comes back. What did he say? Guys, what did Jesus say? Is this really it? I'm getting ready to lose my life on account of him. Is this real? Is this true? Is this accurate? And they come back and they give to him all of this with the exception of to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. John was probably one of those that had this passage of Scripture memorized. And as he begins to hear them recount what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying, he's going through it in his own mind. And all of a sudden in his mind he comes to this part, liberty to the captives, opening of the prison, but the disciples have stopped. John says, something's missing. It's not all that the prophet said. This is the very reason that John is despairing. You see, when Jesus comes along and he does all of this healing, and the prophet proclaims that he is going to bring liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, Jesus is, is in his way reminding John that the message of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the vocation of Jesus is not yet fully accomplished. These other things that Jesus does, He does everywhere in the power of the Spirit of God. Lepers cleanse, deaf hear, blind see, dead are raised up. But it is going to take the death of Jesus Christ Himself for the prison of sin to be opened and those who are in captivity, those who are in bondage to be released, to be set free. It is going to take the death of Jesus Christ for liberty to be completed, for those in bondage to be set free. It is almost as though Jesus is conveying to John, John, you are in this earthly prison and it will come to an end for you in this place, in this way, but take heart because there is work still yet to be done that I am doing. And the captive will be released. The prisoners will be loosed. Essentially, John is called upon to believe what Jesus had done in fulfillment of His Word until John could come to understand what Jesus was doing. Friends, you and I have to do that as well. We come back and we say, I have no idea what Jesus is doing in my life. I don't know that this is what I signed up for. Is it really real? Does it really make the difference that people talk about? And Jesus 
and His grace and mercy speaks into our lives. And He says, look at what I've already done. Look at what I've done in fulfillment of the Word. And trust me, until you come to that day that you understand what I'm doing because I don't just make claims, I fulfill Scripture and I keep promises. Jesus answers John with a display of His power and a reminder of His Word. And then he comes along to bring vindication of John. Look at verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Here come the disciples. Jesus, we have a question for you. Are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus turns. He heals. He does all of these miraculous things. Then he turns back to them. Go tell John what you have seen and remind him of the prophecy of the word that what Isaiah said is what I am doing. That will be enough for John. Then John's disciples leave. And as they leave, they don't hear what Jesus says to the crowd which means John doesn't hear what Jesus says to the crowd. He turns to the crowd. No doubt they've heard of the doubts of, of John the Baptist. The news of these, these concerns have been spreading throughout, of course, the crowd. And they're thinking to themselves, what do we make of this? If John has doubts like these, what in the world are we going to do? What hope is there for us? Here is a mighty man of God, and if he struggles with this, what in the world are we going to do? How are we going to make it? And here Jesus kind of brags a little bit on John. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, and he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? John was preaching in the wilderness. The crowds came to hear his message. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see a, a reed shaken by the wind? A, a reed that blows this way when the wind blows this way, that blows this way when the wind blows this way, that, that just goes along with the currents blowing around it? Well, no, you didn't see that in John. John called the proverbial spade a spade. Black was black, white was white, no in between, no gray. It's why he's in prison now. He called out Herod the Tetrarch because of his sinful, evil, wicked lie. Now you don't get that with John. Somebody that's one thing here and another thing here. Somebody that will stand firm with you in this point. But then when you get in this point, they'll stand firm with the other group. No, you're not going to get that. You're not going to get that wishy-washy, uh, mealy kinds of things. Not with John. Well, well, did you go, verse 25, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. No, that's not what you got to see with John. With John, you had a camel hair tunic. If you want the fancy clothes, if you, if you want all of this stuff, you go to the palace to see that. You're going to hear the Word of God. You're not going to get that with John. So then what did you go out to see, verse 26? A prophet? Yes. Yes, that's what you saw in John. And more than a prophet. You got to see a prophet, that's what you saw, but you don't know the half of it. He was more than a prophet. 
Verse 27, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Talking about being the forerunner of the Messiah. And then in verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. John is vindicated. John has doubts. He has concerns. Certainly John may be in prison, but it's Herod who deserves to be in prison. John may be despised by the religious leaders, but he should be the religious leader. He's the greatest that's ever been born among women. How kind is Jesus to the doubting, the weak, the struggling believer. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there before when doubts and fears assail? Have you ever been there before when you wonder, is it really real? Have you ever been there before when you thought, it doesn't make sense, why is it happening this way? In those doubts about Jesus, you run to Jesus, and as you run to Jesus, you find a kind, compassionate Savior. The prophet tells us in the Old Testament that a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. When you come to him in your frailty, when you come to him in your weakness, when you come to him in your doubts and you're saying to him, it doesn't make sense, Jesus, I don't understand this, he doesn't lick his fingers and then snuff out the flame of your life. No. He strikes fire to it. And he says, feel the warmth of my and the fulfillment of my work on your behalf. No one greater. And even he has doubts. It's interesting, he says, there, are, there is none greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Don't you love when Jesus does this? No one is greater than John, but this one is greater than John. What? How do you do that, Jesus? How, how, how can it be both A and not A at the same time? Well, because we have a tendency to look at things through our perspective of time, right here, right now. John, in all of his greatness, did not have the privilege that you and I have. John is on that side of the cross of Calvary. John is on that side of the powerful resurrection of Jesus. In fact, John will never see either of those on this earth because John is about to lose his head over his faithfulness to God and his word. And he is great in what he knew, great in his proclamation of truth. But we come to this side of the cross and we look back at what Jesus has done and we see not just Jesus healing the blind, not just Jesus giving ear, uh, hearing to the deaf, not just Jesus raising the dead up, but we see Jesus crucified, buried, and raised to life again in conquering power over sin and death and hell. We are greater in what we have received than what John had received. Then you see the response of all of this from the people. In verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. 
having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, that is the teachers of the law, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Then Jesus gives this, this indication of what these people are like. They're like children in the marketplace. They're such a fickle little crowd they are. The children in the marketplace and the children are playing a game, and one of the a child comes along, and he's moping, and he's glum, and so the children try to cheer him up. Let's cheer him up. Let's sing a happy song. Doesn't work. And so they try to accommodate themselves to the one who is down. Well, if we can't play wedding, let's play funeral then. So they sing the mournful dirge, but the child won't participate in that. No. Just leave me alone. Let me pass. Just leave me alone to my own devices. If I can't determine the game we're going to play, I'm not going to join in your game. Jesus says, John came fasting. He came with his Nazarite vow. He came fasting, living in the desert, came with a Nazarite vow that he would never touch a dead thing, that he would never taste alcohol. You look at John like that and you say, well, this man's demon-possessed. And Jesus says, I come along and I'm, I'm eating and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners. And you say, I'm a drunkard and a glutton. There's no pleasing you people. Why does nothing please them? Because of the baptism of John. Some declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, rejected the purpose of God, not having been baptized by him. What was the baptism of John? The baptism of John, we are told, is a baptism of repentance. It is a baptism where people recognize that they are sinful and that they are in need of a merciful God to come rescue them. And so in repentance, they turn away from their sin and they turn to God. Those who experience that, those who come with the humility of heart, they see what Jesus is doing and they embrace it. Those who are unwilling to acknowledge their own sinfulness, those who are unwilling to acknowledge their weakness, those who are unwilling to acknowledge that they have offended a holy and righteous God, those who do not repent, they don't receive what Jesus did. Why? Because their heart is hardened. Ultimately, they, they want God to dance to their tune. Friends, understand this morning that nothing will please the heart that feels no sin. Nothing will please the heart that feels no sin. It is when we recognize our need for mercy and grace and we come in repentance and confession and trust in Jesus that we find our hearts lightened with the power of the gospel. Some people just simply will not be pleased because their hearts are hard and unrepentant. They, in essence, hadn't seen that they were the problem, not something else. 
the question comes, are, are you really the one, Jesus? The answer is given in all that Jesus does. In the display of his works and the fulfillment of prophecy. His people are vindicated, not within themselves, not on their own, but at the word of Jesus, they're vindicated. And it is left up to us now to respond. How will you respond to Jesus? In hardness of heart, will you reject him? Will you deny him again? Or will you come in repentance, embracing him and receiving the precious gift of salvation? How will you respond? Will you be like the sinners who realized they had nowhere else to go? Or will you be like the Pharisees and the lawyers, the teachers of the law of God, making it up as they go, would simply stop and say, oh, I'm good enough. I'm fine. I don't need you. What will be your response to the one who takes you even in the midst of all your doubts and loves you and has compassion on you? Would you pray with me, please, this morning? Father, we thank you for this moment with which we are confronted with your word. You have taken your word and you again have, have written across the pages power and life. And I would pray, Father, today, please, would you make of all of us hearts that are responsive and repentant to the reality of who Jesus is. For those today who are even this moment perhaps swirling in the tidal wave of doubts that have come, I pray, Father, that you would please bring them to yourself. I pray they would run to Jesus and they would find compassion and grace and mercy for those who come to him. Father, speak into our hearts and our lives today everything you would have us learn of you, that we might be changed by being under the preaching of your word today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand this morning. We stand, we sing together. Time of response for you. Maybe, maybe you'd like to know about following Christ. Maybe you would... Maybe you'd like to know about becoming a member of this church family. Whatever it might be, we'd love to begin that conversation with you even now. Just slip out, come meet me here. We'll start that conversation together. Let's sing together with one another.